Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to my podcast, The Stephen Sully Study. I'm here at my second home, Woodbury House. I've got a great guest in front of me, Mr. Frederick Ferrier. That's it. I was wondering how you're going to pronounce it, Brissett. You went Frederick Ferrier. I have been uh, rehearsing it and I've been studying it and I thought it's, it is Ferrier, isn't you it? You nailed it. You yeah. Couldn't, I couldn't have done it better myself. So a bit of a random one, actually, and it's something I'm really interested in. We were just talking about it off air. Clearly, you're a guy who keeps himself in good nick, yeah? I try. You do traps 400 times a week? I just do shrugs, basically. Just, just shrugs. go to the gym and then I go around and I just like that. Um, you know, actually, so I, I found out uh, the, the reason why I think I've got overdeveloped upper traps is because I've got a shoulder injury. So right. naturally, when you have a shoulder injury, what you do is you protect your shoulder by shrugging it. So it's actually like... Compensate. Yeah, exactly. So you overcompensate. So recently I had a session with this guy and he's like... You, you need to develop your lower traps and all this other stuff because you shrug up. So I'm basically like the hunchback of <laughs> hunchback of Soho. <laughs> um, part of training, no, normally when people train, they also take care of their insides and also nutrition, wellness, you know, fluids, etc. Et and we're also having our cold press juices this morning. So we're, we're winning. We're, we're... The, the Stephen Sully podcast. I mean, the service. It's worth coming on here just for the free juice. That's what I heard, you know. Exactly. Um, where did that kind of interest come from? Because I'm always fascinated to see other people that take care of themselves. And what is your inspiration behind it? Is it because the way you want to look and feel? Or is it more than that? That's a, it's a good question. And normally, yeah, people don't really ask like the why, like why you just assumed that everyone wants that. Um, I guess when I left school, uh, the first person that really got me into training, like in the whole new level was a guy called Marlon Yates. Right. And this is when I was 19 years old. I was living in New York. I was modeling at the time. And uh, I lived with this guy in the models apartment. And he was like this full on kind of gangster from LA. You know, he was a, he he had an option to be pro NFL and pro NBA, and he was this like, super good looking dude that taught me. I thought I knew about how to train, and we lived together. And he just he was like, "No, this is how you train." So that was the way I sort of got into it. He actually went on to. Did you ever see that film Straight Outta Compton? Yeah, uh, he was the DOC uh, in that. Uh, Doctor Dre. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the the whole film uh, um, about that sort of group with Easy E and stuff. He was in that, and then. He also went on to date. Which by, sh- by the way, I just interviewed Bum B. Oh, really? Yeah, literally the uh, the episode came out yesterday. Absolutely phenomenal geezer. I had to say it because you mentioned. Well, this is a perfect segue into <laughs> yeah. that. Um, well, I feel honoured to be here in that case of the calibre of guests. Um, so yeah, and he then went on. And this kind of gives you an idea of how confident he went on to date Shaquille O'Neal's ex-wife, Shawnee O'Neal. Wow. And I was like, you've got to be a very confident, like those are big shoes to fill, you know? And anyway, so he went on to date her. Anyway, he was the guy that taught me properly how to train. And since then, it's just been an essential part of my day. Like the, everything else is a byproduct. It just gets my head into the right place. And it fills me with like a, you know, contentment and sort of joy. Yeah. So I think, I think, uh, you know, since my parents' age, they obviously slowly but surely started getting into training, but there wasn't much culture about really much about what you eat as far as what it does to your insides we all talk about fat and you know trying to look lean or trying to look a certain way but in actual fact you touched on something that i'm really interested in is what happens inside of your body that really counts Mm. and the cold press juicing really helps that Mm. and we also spoke about intermittent fasting so Mm. i wanted to have your take on that again yes intermittent fasting i mean it's uh it's been sort of very popular recently but 
to all the people that are, you know, I think the thing that's overlooked about intermittent fasting is what it does to what it does to your insides. It's this sort of cell regeneration. Um, and actually one thing that I found very interesting, my friend, a guy called Max Lowry, who was the first person that got me on it. He said that if you go back to the days when we were, you know, hunter gatherers, the hungrier you would get, the more efficient you would become because you would need your brain to become better to hunt. So in other words, when you're getting hungrier and hungrier and you think, right, you really need to then sort of become the best sort of hunter. And, and often I think everyone can agree, like when you've had that massive lunch, you just, you've, you're useless afterwards. Same with like a hotel breakfast. If you ever go for breakfast and you have like all the sort of full English cereals, muffins, you just want to go to sleep afterwards. So yeah, it's, it's a really good thing. And also, as I said, it's a very good way to sort of re um sort of redefine your relationship with food because yeah i think we don't need to eat as much as we think we do because food is just everywhere and it's really delicious and it's like there's every single place you go like you can just snack 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 so i think to suddenly realize that you don't need to be doing that is quite empowering as well so in a, in a condensed version then uh, what's your training schedule like every single week because i'm curious and also the type of food that you eat so my training, now what I have to think about more is overtraining. Um, so like, I don't want to, and I've been in a situation where like you fry your central nervous system because you're training, even if you're doing like body part splits, like you're doing sort of lower body, then you're doing- oh, Hypertrophy stuff. Yeah. Exactly. But still what something you're training every single day is your nervous system. So uh, now what I'm doing is I'm basically trying to train like maybe four, five times a week. Um, it's always weights. I don't really do much cardio, but- I've noticed that if I do need to do cardio, I can do it because I don't, I mean, I'm a pretty healthy guy in terms of the stuff I eat. And, uh, but I feel like weight, like weight training, heavy weights and diet is the best way to get in shape to anyone listening. Yeah. By far. So, uh, any special diet, like diet you're on, like vegan or vegetarian? No, I'm definitely not on any sort of extreme. Uh, I, I don't have any sort of extreme diets and I don't really believe in them either because ultimately what you want from a diet, and I'm not a sort of a health nutrition sort of expert, but people ask me for advice on this. You want to do something you can keep up. And I also feel like the number one thing is just awareness. Like if you want to have that, like bowl of like really sugary cereal or that like you know like millie's cookies or whatever as long as you know that it's a treat and you know that it's not like the best thing for you but you enjoy it that's fine it's when i think what's interesting is what when people think that they're having something really healthy but they're not so it's just like changing awareness is everything i would say like it, in life to be honest yeah education right exactly so um your profile on Instagram, right? 147,000 followers, verified. And in your bio, you've got singer, songwriter, DJ, you play the uh, piano and, and violin. But then also, when I was doing more research into you, mate, <laughs> you need more room on that bio because yeah. the, the stuff that you've done is actually quite incredible. And what I admire about it, because some of the stuff I would never attempt to do, but what I admire is the go getter mentality and i think that's such a great thing to have especially if you can nurture it quite young and i assume by just doing a slight little bit of research you probably would have got some of that instilled instilled into you from your maybe your parents or your family members i mean your, your dad here john yeah mm -hmm. area ceo of golf uh, keystone mm. pe um, petrol company mm -hmm. right petroleum 
Um, and I see here off the back end of that because it's of his job. Seriously well researched. Yeah. So I'm like, the triple S, he's like Sauron. He knows everything. <laughs> um, you traveled the world as well. You know, you obviously been, uh, grew up in Norway, had stints in Texas, Syria, Moscow, Denmark, Iceland. So let's strip it all the way back, right? Your go-getter mentality, that personality, that characteristic. Where's yeah. that come from? Okay, well, I'll start this by saying, yeah, I, I am so fortunate to have the parents that I do. Like, they're so supportive. And the relationship I've got with my dad today, I cherish. And it's like, you know, I was with him yesterday and I just, it's sort of evolved over time to now we're like sort of brothers and we can help each other. But he has, yeah, given me everything. And, and my mum as well, you know, she's looked after us everywhere we've went. We lived in eight countries. So yeah, then yes. And these are sort of quite bizarre countries, you know, places like Syria. Uh, spent a lot of time in Norway, Aberdeen, Denmark. Uh, my dad was also, we were in Texas. I forget. And, like, and that's just the places that we- Iceland. Iceland. But that's just places that we've lived. And I've been to probably like 52 with him. We've always like traveled a lot. But anyway- my dad is uh, is one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, he's extremely honorable. He started out as a geologist and then sort of has done every single different thing in the oil industry, which eventually led to him being the CEO of that oil company, which actually he retired last year. Now he's doing something completely separate, which is very interesting, which I'll get into later. Um, but he, uh, why I have this go-getter attitude is because when I went, I went to a boarding school on a music scholarship. So at the time, as I said, my dad, I think, is more recently successful. But at the time, I, I went to this super expensive school on a large uh, music scholarship. And what that did, and I don't think I've really ever spoken about this on a podcast, but yeah, here we are. Uh, what that did to me was I was surrounded by a lot of wealth, like wealth beyond like, you know, private jets and all this, like the, kind of that level of wealth. And I think it just gave me this like insecurity of like, why don't I have this? Like, I want to have this. So I used to like lie about the sort of stuff, like the clothes that I would wear and I would look at all my friends that were like 13 with Hermes belts and stuff. And it would just, it gave me a big insecurity. But what that insecurity did is I think when I left, and it also made me obsessed with lifestyle, probably to the extent that was unhealthy, if I'm being very honest. Like, you know, I used to fantasize about these like car magazines and look at all these watches and just think, I really want that. And like, why can't I have that? And I was fixated on it. So I think what that did is when I left school, it just gave me this insane drive to attain that lifestyle, which is probably, I'd say the wrong reason because it, like, like anyone that you ask now, I think, you know, we both have been around super rich and super wealth and stuff. And it really doesn't mean anything. And I think it's easy to say that it's like that example when you have this like supermodel girlfriend that's like beauties from the inside. And it's like, yeah, but you're sort of a Victoria's Secret model. But I can genuinely say, having spent time with some of the richest people in the world, that the money doesn't mean anything. And they're all looking for connection. So which is why, that's why I sort of I want to say that because to anyone listening, it's, it is, it's really not everything. Anyway, so that's where my drive came from. And I think that it sort of, it, it made me sort of able to sort of fit into all these different environments because I was very good at just like being a sort of chameleon and sort of acting the part. Um, and yeah, and I think in terms, so that's that part of it. In terms of music, my parents were the people that uh, didn't give me an option to not be a musician. And I say that and everyone's like, oh, that's a bit, sounds a bit intense, but I, I really feel like as a parent, it's a duty that you have to your children to make them do stuff. 
because I personally believe, and speaking from my own experience, I wouldn't have done anything. If my parents just said, okay, you just, yeah, you just do what you want, do what makes you happy. I would have just like dosed around, played computer games all day. But, you know, they said, okay, no, you, if in order to play, you know, Nintendo, you have to do an hour's, you know, practice. My mum was very good at this. Or like when she used to drop me off at orchestra when I was like, you know, 11 years old or even uh, like nine years old, it came with, I'll give you some gifts as well. Or like, I'll take you to this restaurant or something. We used to go to Ikea in Norway at the time. So I really think it's important as a parent to make your children do stuff because I was... I hated every second of it. And it was only when I got to about the age 14, 15, where I suddenly discovered that music was actually something I liked because I connected with some other people that were young that I thought were cool. And there was this girl that I fancied who was a very you know talented musician. And that was where I thought, actually, it's quite cool to be a musician. Mm. So yeah, that's kind of, that's my musical drive came from, my parents instilled that. My desire to sort of make money and to sort of do all these different things was came from, a, a, I think, a feeling of lack, which is very interesting because so many things come from, I think, a place of your childhood where you, you feel like you're lacking something and you want to make up for it. Yeah. You know, as you were talking, I was just sort of going into my own sort of like thought process because you were mentioning you as a kid and how your mum and dad guided you, you know, it gave you that discipline. And I've got two kids myself. I've got Logan, who's just turned one, literally, a couple of weeks ago. And I've got Mason, nice. who is three, who's about to be four in November. Logan's still a baby. Obviously, I'm still, you know, mindful of what I say to him, etc. But the reality is he's still a baby. But Mason is like my little best friend now. And overnight, I always say to him the same thing. What are you going to do tonight? And he goes, dream of success. And I always say that to him. Keep on instilling it. And I do boxing, yeah? Uh, I think I mentioned to you, I've had 16 fights. My last fight was in March. I'm planning to have a few more before I sort of retire out of it. And I get him every single morning and just do a couple of little jabs and, and stuff like that. And I totally resonate with what you're saying because there, there, there has been the political kind of stance, which is, no, let them be a free spirit and let them do what they want and they'll find their own way in life. And I understand that to a certain level. But I do also think that if you don't guide them, they could be susceptible to the wrong thing because their peer group, their friendship group, or people that they might look up to on social media or maybe on TV, etc., they might go down maybe a path they're not destined for, mm. shouldn't be destined for, or even the wrong path. So I do honestly believe harnessing that discipline, that focus, that hard work, and saying, look, you can do whatever you want to do in life, but you've got to do it with focus. You've got to do it with drive. You've got to do it with sacrifice. I think that's Definitely. really important. Definitely. Um, also, as humans, I think we're, we are programmed, most of us, some, some people aren't, but most people, I think we're programmed to be lazy because we're always looking for the path of the least resistance. Like as, you know, as a thing of going back to survival, we want to sort of reserve our energy. So if there's something, if there's the easy option, we'll take it. So naturally if your parents are sort of allowing you to do stuff and they're just saying oh no you do what you want and like here's an unlimited bank account it doesn't end well and one thing i always think is interesting because you know i was an art dealer for three years and you know it was a we'll, we'll go on to that later but you know i'm lucky to have spent some time with some of the most successful wealthy people in the world and a lot of them what they had in common was when they were young they had an extremely harsh environment where they formed this killer instinct you know, whether, and they had maybe some sort of like high frequency sales job and they had to survive. Um, and what that did is it just gave them this complete 
mastery of sales firstly because they were sort of you know trying to sell whether it's newspapers or meat or whatever and they had to do it because they didn't have an option not to so then if you can do that when you're a kid and you're like six and you can sell these things you know when you're 20 and you've done that for 20 you know you've done that for like 15 years yeah how good you are it was something and I kind of realized that that was something I had a wonderful childhood but I never had that sort of fear instilled into me of like, okay, I need to go and do this. But it was something that all these hyper successful people had. However, the byproduct of that, and there was a side effect, is sometimes a lot of these people could never rest. They were completely discontent and they were always, they could never turn off. So it was like that sort of ultra success, but they would never, you go on holiday with these guys, they're never just chilling. They're on their phone. They're doing this. They're like, there's the music situation. They're just like fixated on the music. They're, okay, where are we going? Okay. And they cannot stop because it's this thing that's, so it's like, it's trying to find that sort of, you know, the dreaded B word. It's trying to find the balance, you know? Yeah. I think uh, the quote in, it's either Wall Street or Wall Street 2, where he said, what's your number? And he goes, more. Mm. And he literally is, there's no, there's no end in sight. And I, I admire it a lot because I think, Cool, you're worth a billion, you're worth 10 billion, you're worth mm. 20 billion, but you're mm. still up at the crack of dawn. I talk about one guy particularly a lot on my podcast, a guy called Ozzy. He's got the largest private care homes in the country. Um, if he's not a billionaire now, he's very, very close. And the guy is up at six o'clock in the morning. He's training. He rarely drinks. He's in great shape. He's 55 years of age. And he is obliterating life and business. He's on it. He's on it. He's on it. But then I do sometimes think like, like, when is enough enough? When 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 is it time to kind of appreciate everything you got and kind of switch off? But I think that's a blessing and a curse. I think if you do switch off, problems happen. Mm. But if you don't have a little bit of downtime, you can run into that fatigue and into that kind of you might have a breakdown. You know? Yeah, and you, you're or full burnout. Yeah, which sounds. I mean, yeah, burnout was this expression that I never used to understand, and I've I've never had burnout for the record but uh, I've known someone that has and it's like you you basically fatigued for about six months yeah your body just like it's a sort of aggregate you know sort of uh, over time just compounded you know lack of sleep because sleep is apparently something that you can't bank you know you can't have like three four weeks of eight hour sleeps and then have one night of two hour sleep and then use that other one you have to go do into it. your reserve yeah it's something you can't bank. So yeah, uh, yeah. So burnout is, uh, yeah, I see it a lot. But it's that. What's interesting is it's that it's the discontentment, which I think is 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 really interesting. It's like the line between being uh, hungry for more and being content. But often people that are ultra successful, they just cannot enjoy what they have, mm. and it's like this isn't enough, and I need more. I need mm. more and more. Yeah. Well, it's a bit like training, isn't it? It's like, uh, but I guess training is a little bit different because. It keeps you it keeps you focused and switched on. But if you stop doing it, you mm. would become probably overweight. You mm. would become uh, no energy. You wouldn't yeah. you wouldn't be alert as much. So it's a it's a thing that you it's like a lifestyle choice. And the irony is what you were just saying there about contentment, etc. I'm going to ask you at the end of the conversation. A quote, I, I came up with a quote which is about that, and I always ask my guests to give me their interpretation. So I'll come on to that in a minute. Do you know, talk about money, right? Mm -hmm. Said about you around loads of uber wealthy people, not just at school, through family, but yeah. then also clearly on Made in Chelsea, there's going to be wealthy people on there. Yeah. But then also in your, being in a gallery, Heist, mm. is it? Geist. Geist. Geist, mm. okay. Like in, in, Heist, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, uh, in, in, Mayf in, in Mayfair, obviously I'm in the same world as that where I'm meeting 
all pe- people from all walks of life, but a lot of the time they're very, very successful people in their own right. I've got written down here from Idol Net Worth. Don't know if you've ever seen this on the internet. No. They this reckon, is my net worth. They reckon, because obviously when you type your name in, one of the most popular things that comes up is net worth. I'm like, oh, I'll click that. And okay. as I went on there, it said, Idol Net Worth says that you are worth $30 million. If only. If only. Where's that come from? I saw this <laughs> I saw this thing before. No, I'm not uh I'm not worth thirty million dollars. But I, I've loved 29. those things. No. <laughs> I, I love all those things where they sort of put all those things down. I don't know where they get them from because I don't even like I think the only sort of business that um that I mean like even on LinkedIn I don't have anything like that. But yeah, no, so going back, so yeah, to answer that question, no. Um but to go back to the art my art days, that was a completely uh i mean it was it it was so fascinating how it happened i sort of brokered an art deal uh, at the time so i left university so to rewind actually a little bit more like i went to after school i sort of went i thought okay what university am i going to go to i went to bristol i studied music and i went there and i just wasn't ready to commit to university i was all over the place I was partying in London. I just, I started hanging out with some very fun people that showed me like what it was like. And that sort of, that sort of scrap, like, sorry, that itch that I had before about lifestyle, suddenly it was like London. And it was like all of London suddenly opened its way. Like I remember going around Barclay Square and just seeing everything, these nice cars, beautiful girls. I was just like, this is, this is it. This is home. And to be fair, it's, it's never been that good since like that, because it was the first time I went there. Mm. And um, so I got very much wrapped up in that. And then stupidly, I would then go back to Bristol and I'd be like, too good for this. Like, what, university halls? Are you kidding me? I was like, I've just been in Mayfair. And I was like, that's how lame I was back then. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and then I got asked to do a show. Uh, have you heard of a British designer called Oswald Boateng? Yeah, on yeah. Savile Row. Exactly. I bought a few suits, suits out of there. Very, very that- suave guy. Yeah, I bought some really, like back in the day when I, you know, I thought I was like a young, cool, hip guy. You still are. Yeah, well, trying to be, you know, but I'm a father now too. Going through midlife crisis. Um, But yeah, back then, driving a nice car and I went in there and I bought a few suits and you know Michael, my former business partner, we we went in there and we bought the most hilarious suits you could ever imagine. One was red. Yes. One was green and one was purple. I looked like an absolute plum. Harlequin. What a toss up. But so, so this guy, yeah, I mean, if anyone hasn't uh, seen great his stuff, designer. he's a fantastic designer and he does, he does some very sort of loud suits, but yeah, he's, the tailoring is fantastic. I met him in a club and he was like, yeah, I like your style. He's like, you should do a, you should do a show for me. What are you doing on Tuesday? And I was like, you know, I'm around and he goes, okay, I'm doing a fashion show at Royal Albert Hall and you should do it. And I was like, that was at the time, I, if I didn't need my head to get any bigger, like having Oswald Boating say, okay, can you walk for me in Royal Albert Hall? So I was like, yeah. And actually, yeah, it was, um, there were some other cool people. Do you know that guy, Dudley O'Shaughnessy? He basically, he was in, he's an actor. He does lots of stuff. He's in Top Boy and, and he did like, um, he was dating Rihanna for a while. Anyway, he was in it as well. There were some other quite cool characters. Anyway, we did this, uh, we did this fashion show in the Royal Albert Hall, which was just amazing, like in fully loaded. And then I met this um, agent that was like, you should come to New York your look would be amazing there. And that was all the ammunition I needed. I was like, right, I'm too good for university. I'm just going to go and be a male model in New York. Anyway, so I went, my parents, despite how good my parents had been to me, they were just like, you're an idiot. Like, why are you doing this? I was like, no, this is one chance to do this. 
So I went to New York, I went for like eight months and then I, it took me eight months to realize that I'd made this huge mistake. So also during the eight months I met Marlon, um, the guy I was saying about the, the mm. sort of the hench, hench dude. Um, but yeah, I needed to have that lesson. I need to sort of be humbled. And that was one of the, my first sort of humblings, I'd say, where I sort of went to New York, realized actually everything wasn't just amazing. And, you know, you actually, and I, I thought I've made a huge mistake. I need to go back to university. Went back, reapplied, took like, obviously missed a year, went back a year. And, uh, and when I went back to university, actually, I wanted to be there. So it was great. So then I did three years at Bristol. In my last year, my friend, uh, a guy called Francis Bull, who I've been friends with at school since I was like 12 years old, my best friend, who was a, who's always been a very eccentric character to anyone that knows him, um, you know, just always coming up with wacky ideas and, you know, just like things you just like noise and be like, shut up, Francis. My best friend was like, shut up. Anyway, so at the time he was at Edinburgh, he was yapping on with me about this, like how you know, you know, this new thing that he was doing, this new business idea, this new sort of, you know, private jet, this new this. And I, and I was like, uh, and then amidst the chaos of all these things, he was like, oh yeah. And I've met this production company. They want to film a show about me. And I was like, oh my God, I was like, this is, this is like, this is it. This is the, you've finally gone crazy. It's this. And then it's, <laughs> then it's the tit, it's the foil helmet. And then it's like the prepping and you're going to be hiding. You're like, you're going completely insane. Like, it's like the, you know, and he was like, no, no. And the, for some reason, he kept going on about this TV show. And he's like, yeah, yeah, this is like in Channel 4. And I was like, like, shut up. I was like, Channel 4 do not want to film a show about you. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be called like, it's going to be called Chelsea Girls. And they want me, I'm going to be playing polo. And, and we're going to film the pilot. And I was like, all right, mate, yeah, cool. And then I think a few weeks later, he was like, yes, yeah, so I've done the pilot. And uh, I spoke to them and they, I told them about you. And I, they really want to meet you. And, uh, and I was thinking like, yeah, okay. So he kept going on about this. And eventually, so I come to London. He's like, please just meet them. I was expecting to go to like a big yellow self-storage and just be in this like dodgy room and there being like one guy with a camera, like who was like some felon or something. But we go to Shoreditch and we go to the T building, which is like this huge, um, impressive building. And we go up and sure enough, there's this whole production company with like people and, you know, like, you know, like rooms and stuff. And I was like, Francis, like, what the hell? This was also a time I had super long hair. I was dating this Czech model who was absolutely beautiful called Eva, who was six foot three, um, who I met in New York. And uh, anyway, and I was wearing like a full on fur jacket. So I was still a little bit like ostentatious. Anyway, and I think they saw me and they just thought, you're a plonker, you're perfect. <laughs> like you are exactly what we need for TV. Some like long haired guy with a fur jacket with this like girl, six for three girlfriend. They were just like, yeah, it's like, who's this Muppet? Anyway, so I, I sat and I did an interview and they said, yeah, okay, well, we look, we're starting, we want to film and you know, we're going to think about start like, you know, starting in like three weeks and stuff. And, um, and yeah, so then I remember the first scene and I kind of went along with it. We signed a contract and it was at the time, it was me, Francis, Spencer, Hugo, Rosie, Louise, Thompson. Like we all knew each other. We were all friends and we were like, oh, so you're going to do the TV show as well. And we kind of just thought, why not? Like I'm all for just, I'm all for like all in every time to the point where it's probably like they, I've heard that there's two kind of people. There's people that are sort of more reserved yeah. that are very safe, that miss a lot of opportunities, but they never get burned. And then there's people that go all in the whole time yeah. um, and get more done, but then also have a get smacked in the face, corrected. I'm definitely more on that side. Yeah, me too. So anyway, so I was just like done. 
Let's do it. Sign. Don't even read it. Well, you know. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so we the arrogance. All, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I had that up until the age of like 25. Um, Not a bad thing though, mate. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so I kind of, um, we, we decided to do this show and uh, it turned out to, uh, my first scene was like a rowing scene with Francis and I'd never rowed before. And, you know, um, that's my, when all the shrugs come into exactly. Into I didn't have the traps exactly. Yeah. So I hadn't, I hadn't been, I hadn't been shrugging at that point. So anyway, so Francis was like, "Yeah, it's fine. We'll just, I'll just, you know, it'll be easy. I'll just teach you once we get there." So we turn up to Henley on this freezing day, and uh, Francis is like, "Okay, we'll we'll go out into the boat before we start filming." And it's pissing it down, and so we go to this ergo. And Francis, like, right? So you pull and you pull there, and they're like, "Right, guys, we need to, we need to start filming. Come on, we need to go." And I was like. So we get into this boat. There's all these cameras. I'm so nervous because I wasn't used to being around cameras. And we start just chatting. We're just there freezing, just sitting on this boat, just having some like absolutely gash chat about, I don't know, whatever. And then we fall in. And I on remember, purpose? No. We, oh, right. we, we push off. And then basically I then correct the boat because I, I shouldn't have corrected. And we fall in, we jump out. And then I was thinking, oh God. And they had it all on camera. And I was thinking, oh, like, please don't show that. Because they, they pitched the show as like a you know, we're going to make you guys look like the London gossip girl. And I was like, so cool. I was like, I'm basically going to be Chuck Bass. And I was like, that's not very Chuck Bass falling into the water. That's like quite, you've been framed. And anyway, so, so I was speaking to them and I was like, you're not going to show that. And they're like, no, no, definitely not going to show that. Like, we want you guys to look great. We want you like, we want you to look cool. And then I remember getting a call from the head producer. She was like, hi, Fred. Yeah. So, I've seen the footage and we are, we are going to keep it. And I was like, I remember just feeling at the time I was in Bristol and I was like, that's it. I was like, I, my life's over. I'm, I'm going to be in some stupid show where they're, <laughs> ultimately I was in some stupid show, but as in, I'm going to be in some show and the first thing I'll be falling in, we're going to look like idiots. And anyway, it turned out, yeah, then we filmed and it turned out to be the, yeah, it turned out to be Made in Chelsea. And I did it all whilst I was doing my last year of university and I didn't tell anyone. And then it just kind of happened. And it was a really, really wild experience like that, I, that I'm very grateful for going from like, because it was like a sort of overnight success in a way, which as we know, there's no such thing as an overnight success, but it really was. I went from being like, no one knew who, knew who I was to suddenly in London, a lot of people knowing who I was. Because um, when it first came out, it was popular and lots of people knew it. And like the adverts on the show were just like flashes of just me or like, you know, another character or something. So yeah, it was a really cool, fun experience. But um, I often think that, it, I don't think it necessarily changed me in any way. I think it was just fun. I, ne- I didn't feel like it was a sort of, yeah, I'm finally getting recognized for this. It was just like, it was just a bit of fun. And it always was a bit of fun. So yeah, then I did that. And... So um, I've got to hear that you came away from it for five years and went back on it in 2016. Why did you come away and why did you go back on? So yes, good question. Um, so to be honest, I, I feel like reality TV is not really who I am. Uh, I didn't really feel like it, I was part of it from the moment I started. Um, I'm, you know, I, I like some aspects of it, but I'm quite private in lots of other aspects. So whilst I was filming season one, um, I remember I met this guy uh, called Jacob and he basically offered, he's like, oh, you know, we should start this art gallery together. And we kind of, and I said, oh, I don't really, yeah, I'm not really sure about that. And he goes, no, no, so I've got some really good connections and I, I think you'd be really good at it. You know about art, et cetera, et cetera. Let's do it. So that was the, that was the bait. That was the start of the gallery called Geist. And we brokered an art deal 
And, you know, it was a, it was the first time I'd ever made serious money. And, and I was suddenly thinking like, oh, okay, I'm an art dealer now. And I kind of, that's how I got into the art market. And then that just sort of kind of compounded and we started working with the artist that made uh, The Bull in Wall Street, Arturo de Modica. Yeah. Nick Fidian Green. And we had an amazing, amazing, like, so Jacob now is taking the gallery to a whole new level. But, you know, we split back in 2015, 16, because ultimately what wasn't what I wanted to do. Like I uh, had this moment of realization where, you know, music is always something I wanted to do. And I kind of, I remember we were about to take on some investment and I looked at the payback terms and I thought, this isn't, you know, this is, this is a long time, you know, and I kind of, I like to sort of imagine being on my deathbed and looking back at my life and thinking, what would I regret? And for sure, if it, if music wasn't the main thing of my life, I would regret that. So we moved, but it was, the art world for me was very wild. It was very, it was all, you know, all around the world. You know, we did exhibitions at like Sheikh Mohammed's stud farm. You know, we were traveling to like Mongolia, Hong Kong, the States, working with Arturo de Modica, you know, who made the bull in Wall Street. Like that's amazing. Yeah. So I went from reality TV to suddenly representing every single person in the world knows that bull in New York. Yeah. You know, it's in... It's in sort of Wolf of Wall Street. If you've been to New York, you've probably had a photo with it. And suddenly I was like 22 years old and we were selling his pieces, you know, two, three, four hundred K. Um, I remember seeing it in Phillips in uh, Bartley Square, probably about 217 ish yeah. in Auction. Yeah. And, yeah. and it beat all, all the estimates. Yeah. And it just testament to the fact it's very iconic. It's very, I think, regardless whether you're into finances, stocks and share equities or not, I think it means something to everybody. 100%. It means something to that young kid trying to become a basketball player or a boxer because it's the, Definitely. you know, or that mother who's trying to look after five kids and she's got to be that ball to, to person. You're so right. And that's, I'm really glad you said that because Arturo, you know, passed away recently and, you know, he wasn't, it was very, I loved that side of the art market for me. Like I really liked spending time with the artists because they're just, you know, they're quirky people. Arturo built a foundry in Sicily, you know, cause he believed that sculpt, you know, uh, the art of sculpture was a dying art and he wanted to sort of recreate that. He was such a positive force. Like he wanted people to, you know, he wanted to do good. And that the whole story of the bull was, you know, he actually placed it there illegally in 1989 as a gift to the American people to stay strong because, you know, New York was undergoing all sorts of hardships at the time and was going through like crisis. So he gave it as a sort of, as a symbol of hope, as a talisman of hope. Yeah. And obviously it was illegal to just go around and just drop sculptures in the middle of New York. So he did it and then it got moved to uh, Bowling Green and then got moved to Wall Street, which is where it is today. And... The thing is with that, which was slightly frustrating is when people, as you rightly said, it means something to everyone and it's always positive. But Arturo was very furious when they put that girl at the, in front because it basically demonized the bull and made the bull something it wasn't because it was, it, the girl was meant to be standing up against the sort of, the sort of malevolent force of finance. Well, that's kind of the way they pitched it, but it wasn't. So Arturo was really furious about that. But um, yeah, it was a really, it was an amazing time for me. And, you know, I also worked with Nick Fidian Green, who's a fantastic equestrian sculpture. You know, his pieces are in uh, sort of marble art. She had that sort of statue of the horse, which was on its nose. And I really liked that side of it, but I just felt there was, for me personally, there was an emptiness and there was something that was lacking. And every single day that I went on that sort of journey, my heart wasn't in it. And Jacob, who's now, whose heart was, he was all in. 
And I could, I felt disloyal in a way because I knew that long term, I was like, I can't imagine myself doing this in my 40s and, you know, 50s. And there would be glimpses where I would go to someone's house and I would play the piano and sing. Or I would go to Hong Kong because we had some clients there and I would sing like a, a karaoke. And I'd be like, this is what I should be doing. I felt like a, I felt like a warmth when I did that. It's like you're calling. Exactly. And it's, it's when you're not living, you can feel it, I think, when you're not living your sort of right purpose and path. So, and I just felt that. So eventually I moved on. But it was, now when people realize, they're like, wow, you, you were an art dealer? It was like a whole part of my life that I was doing. We had a, so, you, know, we were, you know, we had a place on Mount Street. It was, it was a pretty phenomenal ride. Yeah, good. So I'm, I am going to come on to like singing, you know, your career there, obviously releasing a single in 2017. But just two things, because I feel like it would be wrong for me not to kind of round it off. On the note of art, though, because we're in this art studio, I don't try and plug my own stuff usually. You should, but, if you don't, you um, should. The art in here, and I gave you a bit of a education snippet, history lesson on Richard Hamilton. What is your thoughts and feelings behind the Godfather Street art? So honestly, I absolutely love I, I genuinely love this work and I feel like the re- the other reason, I, I just, I, I, do, I don't want to be negative, but I, another reason why I left the art world is the contemporary art world, some of the contemporary art stuff just drove me completely nuts. And I remember going to certain exhibitions with stuff where I would look at pieces of art and just think, this is bullshit. And like, why is this selling for 100 and 200, 500k? And, but I wasn't allowed to say that. So I had, I felt super like, you know, I felt disingenuous. Whereas there was no, I didn't feel like there was talent. It was all conceptual. It was all like, and I felt there was, I had to spend so much time around people that really sort of said, oh yeah. And it was all as, do you know the story of Emperor's New Clothes? It's a sort of a fable that's um, sort of a very rich, uh, a very rich emperor, all powerful emperor got like who would do anything. He got sold some some uh some basically someone sold him nothing they pretended he was so gullible that he said oh do you want to buy these clothes and he was too scared to say that he didn't know because it was there was nothing so basically what he ended up doing was walking around naked because everyone this person basically told him it was the best thing ever and i felt like the art market was like that it's dealers telling people that no no you need to buy this and then then you can sort of prop up a piece of it's there's no real sort of massive value and you can't see that you can't see the talent whereas this straight away i would love one of these like i look at it and i'm so impressed i love the story Mm. it it's moving um it's dynamic i absolutely love it so i feel like this kind of art you can straight away i mean the skill to be able to do that and just to make it look so effortless this is what for me art is about it's uh, it's about sort of it there's a story the fact I actually want this. So I think maybe if I was in, you know, if I just sort of dealt in this art, I might, I don't know, I might still be doing it, but I found it really inspiring. I really liked actually being in that room and being around that and learning about it. It actually excited me a little. I felt excited when you were talking about it. Um, Whereas I just don't feel that about a lot of art. That's great. That's great. And now what you're saying about conceptual art, it was a bit like a few years ago, two years ago, I think, where someone stuck a banana on the wall with a bit of tape. Mm. And I know art is art and it is perception and it is your your view on it. But is it was that really talent? I, I'm not too no. sure. Um, you know, I might release this and someone's going to, you know, uh, insult me by saying, you know, you know, that is the best bit of art in the world. But the reality is, I mean, how much thought went went into that? Was that just to do something, just to get reaction out of somebody? But anyway, yeah. that's what the art market's like. But this is great. No, and I, and I, this is fantastic. And I love, and as I said, the, the artists that I work with, particularly Arturo and Nick, because 
I believe that you want to have some sort of, you know, straight away, I can see how much talent is someone, the amount of time. I feel like when people look at a piece of art, they want to see the man, they want to see the man hours. They want to see the talent, something that they couldn't do. And I feel like um, with Arturo, the amount of skill it takes to sculpt something, that's what's nice to be around. Uh, and this as well. It's the same with like, I think certain watches and something. So the amount of sort of, you know, time it's spent and sort of skill, we like that. But I'm not such a big fan of when something then becomes like an, as I said, Emperor's New Clothes, where everyone is basically saying, oh, this is great. And the reason why it's great is because it's, it's shown here, here, here. And I'm like, yeah, but just, and that, whereas in, I, I felt like I had to sort of pretend to play up to that as an art dealer. Yeah, I understand that. I understand that psychology. Um, running off the whole Made in Chelsea stuff, okay. Um, the only person I've had on my podcast on a reality TV show like that, Geordie Shaw, was Aaron Chalmers. And okay. I, and I had a, a good conversation about the pros and cons of it. And then other people I've had on... Jack Fincham from like Love Island and a few others from Love Island, which is, I guess, slightly different to like a Made in Chelsea yes or no. kind of kind of thing. Um, you said something about it's almost like overnight success, and I kind of resonate with that because when Jack came out of Love Island, he went from a normal geezer where he had a peer group and friendship group and a network, but then suddenly everybody in the fucking country knowing who this guy was. And at the time, he said it was really great. But then after about eight, nine months, when the money started running out and you're carrying on partying and there's drinks and there's everything else that goes with that, you slowly start to find yourself going into depression. And he spoke about suicide and, and stuff. With yourself, I mean, you're a headstrong kind of guy. I, I get that. But that overnight bang, everyone knowing you, I mean, was there any, was there any kind of moments where you felt, Jesus, this is a bit overwhelming? Um, yes and no. I, I think that it's also, you know, it's so easy for someone to listen to that kind of stuff and think, yeah, fucking grip. Like, oh my God, you're complaining about this. But I, I think, it, trust me when I say that, it, you know, it's the sort of seductive dark, the seductive side of the darkness, which can pull you in, which is the sort of the nightclubs. And you can, you see all sorts of, you know, it's very sad. You see all sorts of suicides and stuff that happen in the reality TV world because of the, you know, the pressures. And, but ultimately I, I do think that like, yeah, alcohol and drugs are extremely, extremely negative force. I don't drink personally. I've stopped. Um, but I feel that's that's something that's a way that I've really managed to sort of stay out of what, that. Why have we stopped drinking? Uh, it stops. It stops serving me. It's sort of like a. I mean, I don't really go into it too much, but like a pros and cons thing. Okay. Like I just think I looked at it, and suddenly the cons were outweighing the pros quite greatly. Which okay. and that's really sort of helped me um, stay out and navigate. But I feel like the rea like the reality TV world and that sort of social media stuff. It takes some people are more susceptible and suggestible naturally and can and can be far more like worse affected by it like literally i just do i don't i don't think i'm a famous guy i don't think i'm better than anyone i and like i remember doing when i did the reality tv stuff like i was almost shocked that people like i always kind of shocked people wanted to take a photo with me and i was like oh it's you know it's nice like i i, I never for once thought yeah, I am actually kind of fucking badass. <laughs> like, I, I, I genuinely, I, I don't see that. With music, there was something I enjoyed about music because I genuinely believed that it was something I'd spent 20 years doing. So when someone compliments me on that, I'm very, like, thankful and grateful, and I believe it. 
Whereas if someone says with Made in Chelsea, like, oh yeah, that you know, you're on that show, and I'm just like, I'm, it's just it's just a TV show, you know. Mm. So, uh, um, but I also see that there's lots of people that generally they do start to believe that they are something special after doing reality shows and stuff. Like, um, I always think of there's lo- loads of successful people have come off the back end of reality TV shows, but I've got to say the one that always sticks out for me is uh, Tommy. Uh, from uh, Tawi, uh, obviously Tommy Mallet because of his uh, shoe brand. I mean, and I listen to a lot of personal development and I listen to a mixture of different people and I don't always agree with everything they say and I don't agree with all their philosophies. But one thing I like about Grant Cardone, who's got over a billion dollars of uh, real estate under management, he said, he says, if you get known, that's the first step of being able to promote your service, your product, uh, your systems, etc., and I do resonate with that, and I do believe in that. I think if you become not necessarily famous, but a bit well known because you've been in a show, or you've got a podcast, mm. or you're running a gallery, or you're a successful footballer, you can that could be a segue, a pathway. You can oscillate into into something else because you're known. Mm. Now I know we just spoke about there is a downside to it. Sometimes you get all this attention, and then that could lead on to drink and drugs and mental health issues etc and depression but then some people like Tommy like yourself and like loads of other people have used it as a platform to go on to big and better things and I guess what I'm trying to say is rather than let the TV show use you you use it in a positive way yeah does that resonate with you yeah absolutely and it's something I always say to people when they ask me like oh, I want to get on like I want to get into reality TV I just ask them why why do you really want to like what is it and if it's if it's as simple as oh well, i want to promote the fact that i'm a photographer great uh, or i just i just think it's fun you know i, I want to go out and i want to i'm like okay cool but just kind of know why you're doing it and always it goes back to what we we're saying right at the beginning with uh, fasting and stuff it's just the awareness because i feel like once you once you have awareness and you're not basically like you if you just are your kind of thoughts and you are your emotions and you're that sort of knee jerk thing where you just act I think that's it's it's always better to just remove yourself from that and constantly okay so why am I doing this? I would say though in terms of all the sort of the made in Chelsea people I've probably done the least with my profile like because maybe I wasn't bullish enough but I just never really kind of I mean lots of people have gone on to do lots of other reality shows I haven't done one just because I haven't really felt like it's something I've wanted to do. Um, in terms of like doing huge amounts of you know products and or I haven't done that either. Like but what I I think and even in terms of music, like that's what I'm doing now full time, but I don't fully, fully lean into it. And I still, on TikTok, especially when I release a singing video, people, I didn't know you sang. So I probably am not bullish enough on those kind of things. But um, it just, for me, I don't know, There's, I don't really feel comfortable doing this massive sort of like, look at me, look at me kind of stuff. Yeah. It doesn't really feel, I like, I'm not saying I don't, I like performing and standing up and singing and stuff, but I, I, I don't know, some, there's something that's a bit sort of like, I'm always a bit more kind of cautious about it. Yeah. You're, you're sitting, like, like I said to you when you walked in, I was sitting, in, laying in bed, sitting up, and I, I kept on re-watching the video that you put up, which is pinned to your top of your Instagram, and I went to my Mrs. Emma, my, my wife, I went, they're fucking really good, this fella. <laughs> really, <laughs> really you. good. Thank and I was, you. I was like, yeah, he's powerful, powerful notes, and just on point and uh mate if i could sing like that i wouldn't be in it i'll be out there doing something doing some sort of well that's concert. yeah so that's my that is what i've been 100 percent sort of focusing on um so yeah i mean i'm now like and that's just a slow that's just uh, you know you have to be patient with that but 
in terms of like, you know, potential sort of co like collaborations that I've got this year, big, I've, you know, already got songs on Radio One, songs at Tomorrowland, songs at uh, ADE, uh, some songs at Burning Man, like, you know, I'm building and I feel like at some point soon I will have a moment and everyone will be like, where the hell did this guy come from? And I'll be like, I've been doing this for like 30 years. But, you know, it's the sheer fact of doing it, which I think is actually, it's what I said in the art, when I was in the art world, I knew every day when I woke up that some, I was like, I'm, every single day I do this is going to be, is going to be a another day where I have to reverse this because it just wasn't what I should have been doing. And yeah, it's great. And I, I feel like, you know, in life, you just got to try lots of different things. And I don't know, it's, it's a shame in a way because although there's so much like awareness about mental health at the moment, I still feel like every single person thinks they're not where they should be and thinks they're running out of time, thinks they're too old to do this, thinks they're too, I, that's just the world we live in. It's like an overly, I don't know, we're just like, we sort of uh, obsessed with, you know, being sort of young and rich and, you know, like G-Wagons, Richard Mills, all this other stuff. And you see this on Instagram, you think, Fuck, why don't I, what am I doing wrong? Why don't I have this? Um, but yeah, it's it's all the stuff. I mean, I had a chat with a friend of mine and his Instagram game is strong in terms yeah. of the stuff that he has. And he told me about some of the problems that he's having with the companies and how, you know, they're sailing very close to the wind. And if they don't get this, it's all going to go. And I was thinking, I've watched you for the last year on Instagram. I would never think any of that. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that you, is said the whole time, but it's so true. Just do not believe what you see on Instagram and never pin yourself, like never pin, pin yourself worth on someone else's, on someone else's profile I've got to say being 36 years of age I still feel like you know I train and uh, I'm you know you know I'm, I'm ambitious and I feel that thing that keeps me young but 36 years of age I do now I've got kids as well it's a mad thing like the moment you get kids you start looking at life a little bit differently mm. appreciation but also at the same time think fuck like I ha I feel like I haven't got much time left I have you know, I believe I'm going to live over over 100 years of age. That's my goal. But even if I do that, even if I hit 110 years of age, it's not actually that long away. No, and I sometimes not. think to myself, I get the anxiety a little bit by, by that. And it's um, it's a bit of a problem, to be honest. Well, what I would say to that is that some of the some of the happiest people in the world, there's a, there's a tribe from Bhutan, and they talk about death every day, and they acknowledge every day, they say, Stephen, you're going to die. Like, you are going to die. And that sounds quite morbid. And you think, oh God, I'd rather just not think about that. But in by, it, by not only thinking about it every day, but by embracing it, you enjoy, you think, you know what? I, my kids, I love my kids. They're great. And I'm doing this and this is all wonderful. And Hamilton, aren't we amazing? We're, we're working, we're doing the right thing. And you have that contentment. So actually, I think by knowing that, by embracing your mortality, it's actually quite a positive thing. My dad was telling me about this calendar that he saw where you have the average sort of age, which is 85 years, you have month blocks. And every month that goes by, you color out a block. And what you see is a very rough, crude way of seeing like how many months and how long you have left. And you see it and you think, right, what am I going to do? And what that kind of does is it does actually make you really go and get what you want and think, actually, this the time is now. I have to do this. I want to go and launch this product. And it's something... I hope if, you know, one person that's listening to this, if there's this thing that's, you know, deep down inside you that you're thinking, I'm going to do that and I'm going to do it maybe next year. I'm just going to get settled on this and I'm going to, oh, okay, I'll just get the my ducks in order here and then I'll start, you know, an hour a day on this. Do it now. Like this whole thing of, you know, life isn't sort of a dress rehearsal. You know, it's not like, okay, you do this and then you 
you know, the, the, the main event comes. The main event is now. But I, we're all so, and I'm a huge thing. I always think life is just about to begin. And I've, I've had that feeling my whole life. Oh, yeah, yeah, I just need to get this in life. He's over there. Fucking hell, I'm excited about it. When it gets over there, oh, it's going to be great. But then you're like, whoa, I'm 33. And yeah, so it's, but thinking about that every day, because that's not something you can just complete. You have to bring yourself back to that every single day. And that's the sort of, you know, mastery of the mind is just realizing that life is now. Everything is now. So look, you've achieved so much at 33 years young and your personality, the confidence. I know you're very, very switched on. You're ambitious, but like the goals that you've got five years from now, 10 years from now, 15, 20 years, where do you see yourself? So... I, it's a very good, it's a very good question. And what I would say to this is I believe that we're very goal obsessed in life. And I, I think this is something that, you know, I definitely fall into that bucket and, and it drives me mad to be yeah. honest. <laughs> and the reason why, again, and, and as I said, I hope that someone that's listening to this can think, can relate to this because it, it really sort of changed is, is to stop being so obsessed with goals and just focus on the system in which you get to the goals because goals change, goals can change. You might, your goals about, I don't know, whether it's something to do with Hamilton or, perfect example, this Richard Hamilton opportunity, you, five years ago, you didn't say, my goal is to represent Richard Hamilton and this, it just kind of happens. But the way that you've been so switched on, the way you've been so successful, you've, you've built the system in which allowed you to take advantage of a situation that came to you with this artist. Opportunity meeting, meeting preparation. And then as a result, your goals have now kind of pivoted a little bit because now you're, yeah, you're working with this artist. So my point is, is that sometimes you don't necessarily know what your goals are. And sometimes, and I could do this, I had this stranglehold on what I thought my vision of success. I wanted to be a pop star. I just want, that was all I wanted. Pop, I just wanted to be pop, pop, pop. But actually... And because of that, I then pushed away all these other amazing opportunities that, are, that were there. Because I was like, no, just doing this. Whereas actually, the moment you sort of, you become a little bit more relaxed and other things can start to happen, which can actually be better than the goal that you think you want. All these other cool things can happen. So yeah, so focus on the system in which to, the, to get this, that's, you know, discipline, being an honorable guy, having, you know, doing the right thing over and over again, because people really respect over, over the years, like if you've known someone for 10 years, and you think they're a good guy, you build a credit with them, which then you can do. Like DJing, I didn't know how to DJ that long ago. And now I'm making more money DJing than I am singing. But it's just something I thought I'd try. And then I'm doing like, you know, clubs, festivals, and that's something that didn't exist. You know, I'm working in a, you know, advising a few, as, so my dad now is, uh, he works with this yogurt company, which is, it's an Icelandic yogurt called Skier. I don't know if you've ever heard of this um, type of yogurt called Skier. And he's doing that with The Mountain from Game of Thrones and Dylan Sprouse. And I'm, I'm involved in that company as well. At the beginning of the year, I couldn't have predicted any of the stuff that I've do, like done. This year I've been in, uh, you know, DJing all around the place and, been in sort of Azerbaijan, Tur uh, what's it called it uh, Italy, uh, Canada, Must Miami. Be a great lifestyle doing that. I couldn't have predicted any of this stuff, so I just kind of feel like, yeah, rather than being so goal obsessed, just I'm just seeing where like you know life takes me. But I would, I would, if I was to say something, I would love to. I'd love to do the Graham Norton show at some point in my life. I'd love to be on Amazing, that show, yeah. and I would love to. Uh, I'd love to have a song like the out that, you know, make a collaboration with Calvin Harris would be sick. I'm hoping that one day I can say that and I can, you know, get this little soundbite. 
um, and yeah, have some sort of uh, have some sort of yeah musical success where people really know that I'm doing that. But other than that, everything else is just a bonus to try and be sort of yeah to try and be present to try and fully you know, master sort of my mind and not let the sort of demons of my brain, which is the, you know, the constant, you're not enough, you're not doing this, you're too old, you're too this, to try and actually, if in a day that I sort of one step in front of that, then that's, that's great. And everything else will just, you know, even the fact that the fact that we sort of recently reconnected, like who knows where that's going to go, you mm. know, like we're going we're gonna to talk about all sorts of stuff after this. And I just think, yeah, life can be so amazing when you let it. Um, so yeah, who knows where five years will be? Listen, I do believe in the law of attraction. Um, I I I don't believe in some, when people say the law of attraction and you just sit in a room and you don't do anything and then suddenly a Ferrari or something turns up because mm. that's bollocks. But I believe in. I do believe. I know it's going to sound a bit wishy washy and a bit airy fairy, but like thinking really positive thoughts and eventually an opportunity will come up to make the goal or thing happen. And I remember when I uh, met you and then I started doing the podcast stuff about four years ago, I was thinking, love to get you back on the podcast. I'd love to get you on the podcast at some point. And then the conversation started happening about the art stuff and here we are doing the podcast. Exactly. It's a bit of a mad thing how things happen. Mm. And I do believe in what you're saying, which is when I first started sales, when I was like 20 years of age, 19, 20 years of age, it's very goal oriented. How much money you want to settle, you know, what you want to buy with that money, etc. And I do believe that is quite important to have rather than not because it gets you mindful of what you want to achieve. But then I also do think you start pushing goals away when you become a bit too obsessed with it. One, my friend said something to me once, which I thought was so profound and so on the money. If you want to make the law of attraction work, you need to become attractive. Mm. And what you need, what he means by being attractive is by becoming the best version of you. And then things will come into your space. So training, reading the right stuff, eating the right stuff, resting the right amount, being around good people, being ambitious, working hard, but knowing when to switch off every so often. We need all these things constantly and you're like really energized version of yourself. Things will be pulled in. But if you're drinking, doing drugs, round deadbeats or people talking negatively, people that are problem people, you start attracting the problems into 100%. your life. And that's, I, for me, that's, you know, going in, just fractionally going into a little bit more like that was the thing with drinking in particular. I was, exp you know, my intentions and my actions started to not align. And that's, you know, my sort of, I wanted all of these, like, I wanted to be the best version of myself. I wanted to do this. I wanted this, but my actions were in the other direction. Like, I remember I started like, you know, I, I, my voice wouldn't be on point because I'd gone out drinking and, you know, I'm thinking how I'm like, can be so angry at the universe. Why is this not happening to me? I'm like, yeah, but I'm not like, I'm, you know, I'm drinking and I'm in hanging out with the wrong people and I'm sort of being inconsistent. So it was a big moment and it was a big thing and it really changed a lot of my life and like all the, the law of attraction and all like manifesting things really started happening when I stopped drinking because when I started, when I was drinking, I was always in the, you know, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I was always like, why am I always in? And then now I always happen to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a, it was a really, it was the best thing that I've ever done. It's no, honest. no quince to Tommy Manet apparently doesn't drink. I just saw Jake call post something said, oh, I've had the most success I've ever had with preview my company. Mm. And guess what? It's down to not drinking. Mm. And when I've done like, you know, I think I'm on about four or five weeks now, no drinking. And, um, I've done another five weeks. It just seems like great things come into your space. But the moment you start drinking and then you actually switch that to partying and you're going intense partying, 
man, I've had some really bad shit happen yeah. at the back end of it. Partying, that you know, one thing I always say, and it's something I've never, I don't speak about at all is my, is drinking, but something I've noticed is that, and you know, wherever there's darkness in life, and I'm talking about crime, I'm talking about like abuse, or it's like, I mean darkness, you, you can be pretty sure that there's drugs and alcohol nearby. And I'm not saying that wherever there's drugs and alcohol, there's darkness, but always the other way. I just noticed that if you just, all this like crime, when people get arrested, were they under the influence or something? And now I've, I've been away from it for such a long time. I look at it and I'm like, wow, it's quite like a negative force. Um, so I'm very, yeah, very happy to be out of it. And I feel a lot better for just be, yeah, for, for not being a part of that and not being on that sort of in that sort of in that sort of like I don't know under this spell because it is like a kind of spell that mm. everyone's under. It's like a, almost the cult of which you know people getting absolutely wasted and doing bad things and like ce celebrating it is. And I've done it. I, this is I really want to get like I am not the type of person saying I'm holier than thou because I'm not because I was you know I was the I was ringleader you know but um, I'm just very happy now to to not sort of be in that sort of not be in that world. If there's ever a conspiracy theory, alcohol is, is it, isn't it? Because it's a poison that they know, we know is a poison. We know it's damaging. It can kill you if you drink mm. too much of it. We probably know people that mm. either suffered mentally, physically, or actually died from alcohol, mm. but yet we still do it. If someone dies, we go to the wake and drink. If someone gets married or have, has a birthday, we go to celebrate with drinking. Mm. There, if you feel depressed, have a drink, go to the pub. If mm. you just had the biggest month ever and you've just made 10 billion pounds, go to the pub and have mm. a drink. It's every single occasion, and it all and leads to the drink. Exactly. And that's a gateway to drugs. Mm. And that gateway to drugs is to do the wrong thing. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's fascinating, isn't and, it? And, and, you know, why don't they stop it if they know it's so damaging? It must put a lot of stress on the NHS. I mean, mm. we just went through this two-year thing and they were saying, oh, we've got to do X, Y, Z because of the stress on the NHS. Look at the thing that is in the shop, every single shop, every single bar, every single hotel, every single restaurant. Mm. That's the thing that's the problem. Mm. But anyway, that's a, another conversation. Yeah. Random question. Tell me. Ski accident. Yes. So, uh, so ski, that was, um, yeah, this thing there. So remember, oh, do you remember I said, yeah, the traps thing. So that was an operation I had on this shoulder because I've, I've got hypermobility. So I had a terrible ski accident, dislocated both my shoulders. This one was really bad and, uh, sort of slightly got fixed, but because it was so damaged, I just always used to hunt it. And even when I walk now, I walk with like this shoulder slightly up. So, uh, one shrug. Exactly. Uh, I, but generally, because that's like the safest position for your shoulder. The most vulnerable is externally rotated and out like that. Whereas because of the pins I've got, it's like it likes to be down there. So I, I often have to sort of check myself. I see myself in like a reflection or something. And I'm just like this shoulder's like, the, yeah, the hunchback. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's something. But again, I, that's why now I can't really do like lots of contact sports. But the gym is like a nice way of keeping it strong. Yeah, because I saw you was a competitive swimmer, rugby player, footballer, obviously skiing. Yeah, I used to do all that. Yeah. Um, but now now I, I can't really do swimming. I can do uh, slightly, but no other stuff. No, it's uh, and you know, I don't know, something else that I, I've thought recently, which is, you know, kind of touching back is like, like something that I cannot get my head around is, 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 uh, is fighting. Like I saw on the street recently, cause I live in Shoreditch now and, uh, just, I, I went for a walk to go and grab something and there was a fight on the streets. And I remember just thinking like, that is something that can go so south 
in life. Like a fight, you know, you can you can be drunk and you can... There was this thing even on Unilad about a guy that hit someone and he, the guy fell over and died. There was uh, guys at my school, uh, they were a couple of years above me. I went to Langley Park in, in Kent and um, uh, there was a altercation on a bus. They all got off the bus. The biggest guy... Oh, fuck it, I'll say his name because I don't even know him no more. A guy called Joe Capani, big guy, yeah, for his age, like big. You know, everyone knew not to fight with this guy because if he hit you, literally you would have thought he, yeah. he would, well, that exactly happened. Yeah. He, he hit this guy once, only landed one punch, and as the guy landed on the floor, he hit, hit his head on the curb and died, and he, he went he went to prison for manslaughter, probably about four, two, three years or something like that. Um, and it really messed messed him up, like yeah. really messed 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 him up because he never intended to kill this guy. He just done it because it was a fight. And I know you're about to probably get onto something like that. I mean, it can literally go from a fight, a squabble, uh, you know, a genuine fisticuffs mm. to someone's dying or someone's yeah. paralyzed. It's and that's that sudden acceleration where you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, probably with alcohol involved as well. Yeah, and and both families' life have changed for for the worse. One's gone going to prison, the other one's dead. That stuff. I mean, that stuff absolutely terrifies me. How like something can just happen like that, where everything will change, and suddenly you'll just long for your old life back. You know, because yeah. one little moment, it's terrifying. Yeah. Is there anything you want to promote on like, you know, your songs and stuff or like anything that you want to share with us, like how you're evolving now? Is this, uh, yeah, know, I'd, I'd, I'd love, yeah, I'd love to say, I mean, to anyone that's listening to, yes, yeah, sort of check me out and sort of follow my music journey. I, I mean, it's going from strength to strength. I've got some, you know, a song with Island Records coming out and uh, work a lot with Spinning Records, which is the, say, world's leader, leading dance label. And, you know, for music, music is something I want to do for the rest of my life. And I'm happy to sort of evolve and I'm, I'm letting, because I'm a classical singer and I, I can, I've got a very diverse voice and I can sing so many different types of songs. But at the moment, I'm just kind of releasing different like, you know, dance hits. And then I'm doing, uh, then I also have like some ballads, but I'm not going to release those until probably I'm a little bit older. But I just really, I love performing. And, you know, I've been in a few places recently where I've been dragged up on stage and I have, and I've sang just like that. And I, I'm in that moment, I'm in this flow state where I think I'm in the right place. I'm in the, I'm in the right place at the right time. And I'm super happy. And what I say is like, there's what I would call a, during the art, when I was in the art world, there was a lot of what I call negative performances, which is basically what I mean by that is if you're in a nightclub and you buy a, bottle of crystal and the music stops sparklers come out everyone's like, what the fuck is that? and then that person's on the state on the table and they're just like yeah like that is a negative performance because with that you're making other people feel like how, the f- how has he got this money why don't i have this money he's like five grand what what i don't even have those like all this other kind of stuff same thing as if you're like driving I, i'd say like driving a really nice car in a sort of an underprivileged area and you're revving the engine how do you think that's making everyone else feel it's a negative performance now and the same thing with flexing i think you know you get like a lot of these rappers that are flexing they've got like three richard mills on each wrist and I'm just I'm like yeah. holding money, diamond teeth, diamond and... teeth holding money, and I'm like you're you're, it's, you're making other people feel lack and humiliate, and then at the same time they got their girlfriends looking, following like Should my girlfriend follows this guy, and yeah, and it's making people feel uncomfortable. Like it's good to avoid those, and I feel like singing is one of these things, and doing musical performance, and you know, 
self-help people like Tony Robbins, he's performing, but he's empowering everyone else. And I feel like when I, when I was doing- Radiating. Exactly. Yeah. And you're building everyone up and it's a sort of exchange. And as a result, everyone's lifted. And I think with singing, if you go and see your favorite artist and you, you're watching them, you're not thinking, God, what a twat. I hate this guy. You know, you're thinking, oh, I'm so happy to be here. He's doing something. And then he's feeding off the crowd as well. And it's like a aggregate sort of positive lift. And I feel like, yeah, with music, when I'm doing that and I'm enjoying it, I just, I absolutely love it. And it feels very wholesome. And uh, yeah, and that was a sort of a big thing for me. And I, I try and do that. And it's, it's nice to have those moments in life where you think I'm doing the right thing. I'm in the right place at the right time. You said a word which another podcast guest said to me he's uh he's he helps people get to like high, high like being a peak performer but specifically normally in sport hmm. he's got a guy who a guy called liam that is a type uh muay fighter he's been on joe rogan's podcast actually and he's now getting on a bit but he's now competing again even at nearly 40 years of age and he's bashing up these young younger guys and he was saying, I've got him into a state of flow. Mm. He said, whatever you do in life, singing, art dealing, podcast, you know, fighting, you know, combat sports, etc. If you can be in that state of flow, that's where you're the most successful. And that's where you, you find the most amount of purpose. And I love that you just reminded me of that word because I think that is a true happiness. If mm. you could be in a state of flow a lot of the time and you're doing something called you're unconsciously competent. Mm. it's a bit like driving a car changing gears like when you first drive a car you're consciously thinking about oh i've got to go into this gear mm. there but then when you start you know over five five years ten years you could literally be eating something changing things smoking a which you obviously don't do which i don't do yeah, yeah, yeah. anyway yeah. uh yeah and and you and you're in that state of flow and i think that is when you're winning in life and i i understand that being a, a performer a singer like to get up on there radiate the crowd get them to feel like a certain way and you're enjoying your shit what you're doing is such a powerful thing i like what you said about you're unconsciously competent and it's a nice feeling when you can feel that and you sit back down afterwards and you feel like you feel worthy of the there's no imposter syndrome you're just thinking now that was great i enjoyed that i loved that um so yeah so to be in that state more i want to do that more i want to sort of uh you know at some point uh i don't know i like the idea of you know, whenever I hear a podcast of, you know, someone and they give me a bit of information that then I can use, it's just such a great, you know, it's a form of service. And I feel like as human beings, we need to be doing service. Um, so yeah, it's more of that. One thing I didn't mention actually uh, is, yeah, I'm doing a podcast with Sophie, who's a very dear friend of mine. It's very different to this one. It's a lot more sort of lighthearted. Not Sophie Herman. Sophie Herman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's a, like one of my dearest friends and um, together it's a very kind of like lighthearted funny silly she's very like sexual and it's like i like to listen to this yes yes for sure um and uh yeah so we, we're pretty we're i think yeah fairly new um but yeah we've been like top 20 uh comedy um yeah we're doing well and that's just something i just want to keep growing because i like my, one of my favorite podcasts apart from this one is <laughs> called uh is called smartless and it's with will arnett uh, Will Arnett, Jason Bateman, and I love the way that they can be so funny and invite and get guests on, and then they can, you know, very subtly just draw out little nuggets of knowledge that these people have got for their entire life, and I think that's just such a cool thing. Like uh, just to give, give, give. I, I I think that in life, yeah, you just want to give stuff. You want to just give, and it's it's so e I think it's so easily, you know, maybe although maybe that's probably why I haven't done any sort of loads of paid promotions because I do everything for free. But as in like. 
you i think just like giving out stuff if you, the more stuff you put out i generally think that it does it does come back oh yeah it works its way back around if you give value you, you're going to get it back but i think where a lot of probably younger people actually they think that oh i give something and i immediately should get something back you may not get that return on your investment mm. whether that's financial whether that's emotional whether that's i don't know physical you may not get that for five or ten years mm. i mean the podcast is a prime example right i I've worked out, was well, not worked out, but my little hack I do is when I DM people on Instagram, I never do a text because I feel like they perceive it as a robot and they delete it because I do. Mm-hmm. I do a voice note and that's my 59 second elevator pitch. Yeah. And that is my foot in the door, but that's only the start of my job. Then I've got to get them down to the studio. I've got to get some time. And I've literally chased people for two years and I've finally got the episode. Now, if I had the mentality of, well, they listen to my voice note. It should be fucking on my podcast now, you know, and expecting that immediate return, I'd be a flop. Mm. You know, I'd be a total flop. You, I, I sometimes think, right, how long is it going to take me now to get this person on? It could be, it could be two, three, four, five years, but I'm prepared to go that distance because I want to give my audience value. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. I'd love to say, how, how did you start? What came from the idea of, you know, doing art to then what was the... It, what if I don't know if we have time to talk about that, but I'd love to know even just on a personal level, like how you started yeah. this. Just just in a snippet, I'm 36 years of age. This is basically this is my this is my elevator pitch. I might have even done it to you. I'm not too sure. So I'm 36 years of age. The reason why I'm telling you this is because when I was younger at school, there was no such thing as social media or even podcast. Now, had there been, I think it would have given me a direction. When I tell you it was an absolute lost cause and a flop, I really do mean it. Thankfully, by a bit of sheer luck, also by a bit of determination, I've landed on my feet and I've become kind of kind of successful in my own right. And I started my podcast four years ago. And the mission behind the podcast is to interview go-getters, entrepreneurs, athletes, people in the public domain, people that are perceived as a moving shaker to help inspire the younger demographic. I want to inspire that young man, young female, give them education, motivation, and inspiration by having great conversations with people like yourself. So I would love to get you on my podcast. Please let me know. I'd be very humbled by the fact. God bless and have a great week. Great. Yeah. And I normally get a response from that. Yeah, I'd reply to that. Um, <laughs> that's great, man. I, or do, when you said that, that reminds me of one thing that I, I definitely want to say because it's something that I figure out more and more. I think there's this perception that everyone is smarter. I, I have this anyway, and I feel like a lot of other people, everyone has this perception that everyone is way smarter than them. Like, oh, they look at people and they look at people that have built these companies, CEOs of banks, people in government, and all of a sudden they think, oh my God, like, wow, these people are so smart. I don't even know like how they got there. So I'm just gonna, I'm just here and there. Like everyone, no one is like that. People are equally just messing, trying things out, fumbling along, like, it's to sort of embrace the fact that people we have no idea what we're doing is is a really powerful thing, and I hope that someone listening can say that because no one has any idea what they're doing. They think they think they do, but they're just a lot more confident. And they're like, "Yeah, okay, I'm just going to do it, and then we'll we'll see." To try to sort of not, I mean, it's good to have a committee board in some senses to try things out, but most of the time you get so much value just by doing it, believing in it, and if it doesn't work, learning from it, learning from learning from it. And then that is the way to go rather than just thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm probably going to, hey, do you think I should do this? No, no, yeah, you're right. Okay. Hey, can you do my podcast? Didn't reply. Oh God, no. Like it's, you just have to just keep going. And then with all, every single no and every single negative thing that comes back, embrace it. Think, fuck yeah, yeah, I like that. Okay. I'm just going to use that and go, use that as ammunition to get better and to go further and further. And when you have that mindset, 
you're unstoppable. Yeah, I know it's cliche. It's not sort of, uh, <clears throat> it's not defeat, but it's a bit of feedback, isn't it? And it's in sales. It's not. It's not a no. It's just a no right now. Yeah. In six months, it could be a yes. Yeah. I'm very excited about this this podcast that you're doing, by the way. And I hate to go back onto this kind of subject, but you reminded me there's two more questions I was going to ask you about yeah, this, this whole thing. Sophie Herman and also Olivia Bentley, right? Um, I know there was like a you were dating, etc. Just being a bit naive, is it a genuine romance or is it for the camera or is it a bit of both? Well, that's a very. T- I mean, look, MIC is. Uh... Everyone thinks, everyone, I mean, it's a question I get, like, every single time I get asked for a photo, people say, like, is it real? Is it scripted? I'm like, it's 100% real. Like, it is. Like, and it, it's, there's no script on the show. It's, it's a very bizarre thing to imagine unless you're filming it, but there's no script. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I'd say in terms of, in terms of uh, Sophie, like, Sophie and I, there's, you know, we've had, like, this, like, off kind of screen kind of romance, but now we're just exceptional friends. And she's someone I just wouldn't want to lose. And, uh, you know, she also wants kids and all that sort of stuff right now, and, like, I don't. But we have this exceptional bond, and that's why our podcast is called Friends with Benefits, <laughs> because it's, like, a play on that. And, uh, yeah, it's a very sort of, yeah, lighthearted, a fun. I, in that, I'm very different to, like, have I been in. And I love being like this in this podcast and actually talking like this, because it is a big part of who I am. But on that podcast, it's, like, funny joke, 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 yeah. joke kind of stuff, which is none of the, neither are insincere. They're just different kind of sides but yeah. um but yeah it's uh it's a very it's i'm very happy that i've done it and that was again something i was like do i really need to do it i had that negative voice saying oh, no mate like get a grip no one wants to listen to you no one wants to you know if you do you watch harry potter uh i mean i see snippets of it yeah. okay so there's this thing in harry potter where i watched it on the plane to canada recently i decided to rewatch everything um and there's this like thing i think it's in the second last episode where harry goes to try and like crush this locket and uh, no, no, sorry, Ron goes to try and like smash this thing and the locket basically comes in, it comes in this guise and it basically tells him it's worth it. Like, nasty, and you don't want to do that. Like, yeah, come on, don't do the podcast. You've got like two kids now. Don't do that. And it will tell you all the things that you might be thinking. And it's that negative voice. I had that about so many things. And just to push through it, when you when you can learn to that and you recognize it, it's that moment you're like, we're fucking doing this. Yeah, and that's when it's it's really good to learn to know when that fear is coming and telling you not to do stuff. Because you just push on and it'll all, good things happen when you're uncomfortable. Bad things happen, like not bad things happen, but like that sort of being comfortable just allows you just to do nothing really, I think. Two more questions. One is just on this subject and I'm going to ask you the question I always ask all my guests at the end. So, uh, made in Chelsea, right? It's different to Taui, uh, and I think they're equally both very, very successful and good in their own right. But Maybe the public perception maybe about Made in Chelsea is that everyone on that program's uber rich. Everyone's very well spoken, maybe even posh, and they have this fancy lifestyle. Is that is that maybe how far away from the truth is that? I'd say it's not an unfair generalization, to be honest. Um but obviously uh I don't know, it's it's difficult to say because obviously like with Made in Chelsea, I have a very good relationship with them and they're sort of quite hesitant about people talking. And actually even I think too, they're like, you know, they get very like, oh, don't talk about it. But, um, <laughs> but uh, no, so what I will say like 100% factually is it's not scripted. It's not like none of it is fake. Like 
everything, the relationships are like real, the places are real. Um, and yeah, like it's, it is that sort of like lifestyle. And ultimately like when we started, we were just a group of friends that were going out in Chelsea and Mayfair along. And then it, it's just evolved from that. And whatever they're doing this, they're completely smashing it because they still they get are. a million viewers they a week. Are. And I often used to say to them, me and Francis are like, God, it's, it's so boring, so trivial. Like really, do we really want to know they're going to get back together? But Clearly what they're doing is right because they still get a million viewers a week and it's been on for over 11 years. It's incredible, man. Mm. Well, I, I've discovered the Feeney pub because of that uh, program and that's a great place. Um, and Cheney Brasserie. Yeah. So good. Right. Last question. I came up with a slogan, a mantra, a lifestyle kind of quote to stick by. And I tell it to my son and it's in my gym at home and it's in my front room and it's in my kitchen. And it goes like this. Be happy. Never content. Now, if I were to ask yourself, Frederick, Ferrier, what does be happy, never content mean to you? Mm. Well, that kind of is, is in a way, it sort of goes against what we were saying earlier about, you know, being content. Because I, I feel like you're basically saying that content is not synonymous with peace. You know, because ultimately, I think the goal in life, peace and serenity, because the idea that what we believe as humans, what's instilled into us is that we can only get peace and serenity once we have the holiday house and the, the Range Rover mm. and this and that, and then we can be serene with that. What if you could be serene with none of that and you could be working as a fisherman, you know, with, with, with you're not even married, but you could be, you could wake up and be like, every day would be, you know, you're so serene and happiness. Surely that it doesn't matter. It's just, we like to believe that, you know, you get everything else, you get the sort of success and then you can be serene. So I'd say that the be happy thing. Yeah, definitely. But I, I don't know. I would like to think that being content is, is the end goal. Mm. So to be never content is to kind of say to be never is to be insatiable, which is what we were saying earlier is about always the drive for mm. more is about never being present because you're always thinking about, well, you know, okay, yeah, fine, I've done this, but where's this coming from? So I would say be happy and be content. <laughs> Good answer. And then everything else will come with it. Top man, thank you for your time today, brother. Um, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. No shit, I really have. I think I've got a lot of value out of just speaking to you. And I hope the audience has as well. So yeah. Uh, please share this and uh, obviously follow my good friend over here and uh, share share the head out of the episode and uh, I know he said something different to me but be happy never content and uh, God bless be happy is always content thank <laughs> you very much it's been a pleasure cheers mate thanks, thanks.